Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. This episode of the Global Podcast was recorded on the 29th of April 2019 as we spoke with three key experts on the possibility for diplomacy in international development in Venezuela. On the next day after this episode was recorded, Venezuela's opposition leader, Juan Guaidó, declared what he called the final phase of his plan to oust President Nicolás Maduro, calling on the army to join him and resulting in a split between forces siding with Guaidó and others siding with the current Venezuelan government under Nicolás Maduro. The aim of this episode is to highlight the need and importance of diplomacy in international development in order to bring crucial relief to citizens of Venezuela suffering the most. Now, this episode is longer than normal, but the goal is to present the most holistic view possible of this extremely polarized crisis in the country, in order to empower you, dear audience, with the better understanding on how you, either as an impact investor, NGO, business, diplomat, government official, or even just a very curious global citizen, can try to bring a sustainable solution to the ongoing crisis in Venezuela. The Global Podcast believes firmly in the power of diplomacy to bring both sustainable development and social impact, yet in the case of Venezuela, to provide greater assistance to all those affected. We hope you find this episode both informative and enlightening, and once again, we thank our three guests for taking part in this very important show. On today's episode of the Global Podcast, we are casting our glance on Venezuela, which has dominated international news for months as of late. Now, the country is in crisis with difficult and unequal access to food due to high inflation of the Venezuelan bolivares, which, according to Awanda, as of today, one U.S. dollar is almost 520 million bolivares. The result is millions, or an estimated 3 million, according to UNHCR, Venezuelans fleeing the country in desperation and agony. Many blame the result of this crisis to the complete mismanagement by Venezuelan President Nicolás Maduro, leading first to long queues for food, to now barely any in having proper access for the general populace, with mainly the poor and one strong middle class suffering the most. Now, all of this took a complete spin when early this year, Mr. Juan Guaidó, the current president of the National Assembly of Venezuela, declared himself intern president of the country and calling for fresh elections to move Maduro from the government. Since then, the country and the international political arena have been hot and also have been rather divided on who the current leader of the country is, with the ones suffering the most being the Venezuelan people, where extreme shortages have led many to 
to extreme measures. Measures without its political significance, of course. However, we'll be discussing the case for diplomacy in international development in Venezuela, particularly in providing humanitarian aid. Is this even possible or is it too late given the current dynamics? Now, to provide a holistic overview of what is going on in the country and the complicated scenario, I'm joined by three key experts to discuss. Uh, first, we have Temir Poras Ponceleon, who has served as Deputy Foreign Minister of Venezuela and Foreign Policy Advisor to President Hugo Chavez from 2002-2004, as well as Chief of Staff to President Nicolas Maduro from 2007 to 2013. He is now a visiting professor professor at Sciences Po in Paris. Joining him as well is Daniel Landsberg-Rodriguez, who is the director of Latin America region at Greenmantle LLC, which is a boutique macroeconomic geopolitical intelligence and risk advisory servicing some of the largest investment funds in the world. He's also adjunct lecturer of global management at Northwestern Kellogg in Illinois and is a contributor to Foreign Policy, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and the Venezuelan newspaper El Nacional. Prior to this, he served as the Division Chief for Entrepreneurial Development at the Sucre Municipal Government in Caracas from 2009 to 2010. Finally, to bring the perspective from beyond the Venezuelan border, but still in South America, we are joined by Ryan Lloyd, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of International Relations at the University of Sao Paulo. He was awarded his PhD in government in 2016 from the University of Texas, Austin, and has written in academic and non-academic settings on Brazilian politics, comparative political behavior, vote buying, and of course, most pertinent to this episode, migration. Gentlemen, without further ado, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thanks for having me. Perfect. Well, I, let's... Happy to be here. It's, it's wonderful having all of you, and clearly you bring both a wealth of knowledge, understanding of the dynamics, but also even, even experiences to this episode, as the intention is really to provide to the audience what is going on, as there's, there's mixed news, there's mixed reportings. I mean, it's as we would say in, in Santo Domingo, es un sancocho. It's just, it's just a mix. So, you know, as we traditionally do on this podcast, before we really dive into this question, I want to perform first get some understanding of the background that has led us to this scenario. Now, if we were to go into the origin of of, this, of the current situation in Venezuela, we'd be here for three weeks. So given that we want to keep the focus on, on, on really for the case for diplomacy and international development in the country, let's talk about what happened early this year. And particularly, how did we get to the point where Juan Guaido declared himself as interim president and Maduro having this face-off and, 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 and just getting to this current situation. So what has happened briefly, uh, if we can have that understanding and what led to the buildup that triggered it? Tamir, if we can start with you. Well, Jesu, thank you very much for having me. Well, what, what led to the current situation was the fact that last year, um, a negotiation process between the government, the Maduro government and his opposition failed in January, January 2018. And that led to um, the presidential elections in May 2018, with President Maduro running for office for re-election, 
but uh, most of the opposition not participating in the in the election and therefore not recognizing the result, which was, of course, favorable to Maduro. So um, as Maduro's second term was uh, supposed to start on January 10, 2019, um, that that was the moment that the opposition, which is which has a majority of two thirds in the uh, in the National Assembly, in the uh, legislative body of the country, decided to not recognize Maduro anymore as a president. And uh, by making a, uh, an interpretation of the constitution, uh, decided that in absence of the president, uh, the head of the National Assembly was to take office as interim president. The, 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 the thing there is that um, in the National Assembly, which was elected in 2015, there are several parties. And each of the parties uh, of the of the parties of the coalition of the opposition uh, that dominates the National Assembly was to uh, occupy the uh, the position of uh, head of the National Assembly uh, each year, you know, from 2016 onwards. And in 2019, the party of Mr. Juan Guaido, Voluntad Popular, was it, it was the turn of Voluntad Popular to uh, to uh, to occupy that position. The head of Voluntad Popular, the, the, the leader of the party being in house arrest, the number two of the party being in exile in D.C., uh, then there was, you know, in, in, in third position, Mr. Juan Guaido, a young, uh, young member of the parliament of that party, uh, assumed that position. And therefore, it, it, you know, it came to him to uh, assume as interim president, which, uh, again, this is like a very, very short, but um, the situation being complex, uh, explanation as, as of how Mr. Guaido um, became the uh, so-called interim president from January 23rd onwards, the moment where he proclaimed himself president with the support of the National Assembly. So in that case, so he he got himself the support from the National Assembly in that from that case. There are many who are who are also saying that you know it's you know he shouldn't have done that or he should have done that and that it was illegal and whatnot. But I guess to put to rest the the main question that that many have been saying is the fact that he has the he has the opportunity to do so, given the fact that according to Article two hundred and thirty three, if I'm if I'm mis, if I'm not mistaken, of the Venezuelan Constitution, it says that uh, there can be a president elect if one believes uh, that the current president in power is is ineligible or or whatnot sort of that. So in that case. Go ahead. The, the article, the article of the constitution says that in the absence of the president, mm. there is a series of provisions, mm -hmm. and the absence of the president is typically the president dying or the president um, um, resigning or being impeached. Mm. Um, and 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 normally, um, who I mean, the the person who would have to assume as interim president for a period of thirty days, according again to the same article of the constitution, is the vice president. But the vice president is an appointee, is somebody that the president uh, himself or herself appoints directly. Mm -hmm. It's not an elected official. Therefore, the National Assembly, while not recognizing the president, also interpreted the, the article saying, well, if the president is not legitimate, uh, neither is the vice president. So mm -hmm. that, that's the, you know, the peculiar interpretation they gave to the Constitution and then assumed that the president of the National Assembly had to take office as interim president. But the article says for 30 days. 
and in in and during those 30 days you know the uh, new elections have to be convened uh, we are now three months into the crisis and there has been a series of developments with the national assembly voting a transitional statute to justify the um, the um, president uh, interim president position uh, lasting more than than one month uh, as you can inter i mean as you can conclude yourself this is a a, a, a more than a legal uh, battle or a legal debate a political one over over again the uh, struggle for power in venezuela um, interesting, Danielle. It'd be good to hear from uh, maybe hearing from your 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 point of view in this case in regards to this because this is now posing a question in regards to okay, is this really a coup then, or is this not a coup? Because uh, I think what what seems to be trying to get clarity is now making it more murky. It'd be good to hear from you, um, uh, from from your take. Well, thank you, and, and uh, I, I actually wanted to start by uh, thanking Tamir that that was one of the uh, that was a lot more of an even-handed uh, explanation, uh, citing Article 233, uh, citing the fact that Guaido did not, in fact, declare himself president, but was declared by the National Assembly, uh, which is a, uh, a, 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 a responsibility that the National Assembly has to do uh, in uh, situations where the president uh, cannot uh, really go through with his uh, mandated constitutional role. Uh, one aspect that I think that is, is important that is not, not to... I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt, of, but that, but that I, is I not didn't true. I didn't interrupt <laughs> you. Um, the, uh, but uh, I, there's a couple of aspects that I think are important to, met, to keep in mind. One is that Venezuela is a country that has had 26 constitutions in just over 200 years. That means that the average constitution of Venezuela lasts about as long as a high-end sedan, uh, maybe a really high-end laptop. That's sort of the, the, the actuarial lifespan of a Venezuelan constitution. Uh, and that has created a somewhat normalization of the idea that you uh, write a new constitution uh, with, 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 with a pretty high degree of frequency. Uh, what uh, happened in 2015 was that the National Assembly uh, won by an overwhelming margin uh, and the opposition won by an overwhelming margin, and, and suddenly you had separation in, of powers in Venezuela for really the first time since Hugo Chavez's initial election in 1998. Uh, that created a situation where uh, first uh, Maduro, through the courts, tried to uh, strike down every single law that the new National Assembly attempted to implement. Uh, once that situation became untenable, he uh, declared that there was going to be a new constitution written, uh, which is now entering its third year and has taken longer to write than any constitution, including Bolivar's first constitution when they were starting from draft in Venezuela's history by using the argument that if the constitution is being changed, then the constituent assembly charged with changing it uh, works and exists on top of the elected legislature. Uh, so essentially, the uh, current government likes to uh, cite uh, or declare uh, their opinions on constitutional minutia when it's convenient, but when it is not, uh, the Constitution doesn't really exist because they're in the process of writing a new one, and I suspect will continue in the process of writing a new one forever, uh, because every single uh, separate, separate power sans the executive uh, can be sort of, uh, conveniently ignored uh, when that is the case. Uh, because if that were not the case, then you would also... Uh, in, in, in looking at Article 233, we have to look at Article 350, 
which says that Venezuelans have not only the right, but the duty to disavow any government that has lost legitimacy or that has violated human rights. Uh, and that is something that was put into the Constitution of 1999, which I would add was spearheaded by Hugo Chavez himself. Uh, so the difference now uh, is that when the current government has become so toxic uh, that it has been sanctioned not just by old imperialist foes, uh, but by countries that until quite recently uh, were very close to the government, like Ecuador, uh, when you have those issues at the table, the president cannot do his job. Uh, and what we're seeing right now is essentially a dual presidency, uh, one of which, one figure, Guaido, has uh, a lot of the uh, foreign assets under his control, uh, has the uh, ability to uh, negotiate and uh, create diplomatic deals that then cannot be implemented uh, because you still have uh, Maduro and the Madurillado in Caracas uh, with a uh, very a, a dwindling uh, pool of, of capital and of friends. And that's a situation that is, 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 is very dangerous long term uh, for the Venezuelan people, no doubt. So and it's and it's and it's only proving in regards to the answers that have been provided. It's becoming much more complex than than one is trying to really put into a box. Because for, apparently, from my understanding, that the constitution can be very, 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 very much open to interpretation and has been modified significantly. And now I do want to take this to the next question. As as much as I would love to continue talking about this and really whether or not a this was a coup and b whether or not there's legitimacy and, and and going on and on and on i really want to take it more towards the actual heart of this question so let's let's go back into the fact that okay why though whether or not the the, the the constitution does have indication to say that yes you know he can because of the legitimacy of the current president or whether or not it's whatever one thinks you know as we as we i'm also new yorker and as we say in new york if it happened it happened what are you going to do you know, he, you know, th we have this current scenario going on and where you have Western countries were very quick to, to back Juan Guaido. And I mean, instantaneously with the U.S. starting as the, the recognizable president of Venezuela on an interim basis until fresh elections. And then, of course, you have then afterwards China, Turkey, Iran uh, and Russia and, and even Syria backing Maduro as a legitimate president with each with their own specific reasons. Uh, now, I have a strong idea to the answer that I'm going to ask for this question, but basically what I want to ask is, for the sake of clarity, uh, whether or not that's even possible, how is this now starting to become from what was initially a, 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 a dynamic for Venezuela and Venezuelan politics to now purely political, where Venezuela is, is seems to be now becoming the political pawn in a game of messy geopolitics? Uh, Daniel, let's start with you. I, I agree with uh, I agree with pretty much everything you've just said that the situation Venezuela has become a, a bit of a political football uh, and there's a lot of interests in play uh, and the well-being of the Venezuelan people I would argue is uh, a, a not necessarily as high up on the priorities list as it should be uh, for pretty much any of the geopolitical actors um, who are responding much more to either uh, economic interests or perceived economic interests in uh, the form of, for example, China, uh, perceived uh, domestic electoral interests, uh, for example, in the form of the United States, maybe Brazil uh, is more on the line of ideology. 
Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, Russia, who I think is uh, getting more and more uh, involved, more uh, less because of an economic uh, tie and more because of a, a broad uh, set of geopolitical goals uh, that they see Venezuela as, as as potentially furthering. And that's something that is definitely uh, frightening to me. Uh, I think that the Trump administration's uh, uh, their, their strategy, and and that is to use that term loosely here, has been has has been problematic in in many ways. Uh, essentially, after uh, Guaido was uh, elevated by the National Assembly uh, in early January, uh, soon after uh, the uh, United States uh, sanctioned PDVSA, which is essentially Venezuela's economy. Uh, we used to have some other things going on. We had alluvial diamonds in the Orinoco. We had a uh, pretty good steel company. Uh, we had some agriculture, but that has been basically wiped out uh, during uh, 18 long years of uh, revolution uh, or, or longer. And that is something that has essentially led Venezuela to be uh, almost wholly dependent on uh, oil rents uh, to even feed its people. Because unlike most of the other countries in the neighborhood, uh, Venezuela has the same soil, the same sunlight, the same water as Colombia. Uh, but we import sugar, we import coffee, we import milk, uh, because uh, we have not gotten to a point where we can actually uh, develop those industries uh, domestically. And there's a lot of economic reasons why that, that happens. And it's not a, a wholly a, uh, something that can be solved with politics, but if it's not, uh, there's a lot of economic reasons why that takes place. That said, where you're seeing now is that I, I, I believe much of the uh, powder uh, that the West could use uh, to try and destabilize Maduro uh, has been used, and he's still there, uh, which was not wholly unpredictable. He's, uh, I don't think Maduro is, is, is a particularly a, a dynamic uh, presence in himself, but he is advised by some uh, very smart people. Uh, and uh, he has Cuban advisors in Cuba. Has they know better than anybody how to you approach lines, dance around them without crossing them, uh, and how to survive uh, when your country has been turned into a pariah state. Uh, so it's it was somewhat predictable that that would happen. Uh, the issue is that uh, I think in part due to the current U.S. government's a, a unusually short attention span, uh, when something comes front of mind, their usual reaction is to sanction, mm. uh, sanction early, sanction often. And I think that that has actually worked against uh, the diplomatic effort in, in a large way. One, uh, if you are not close to the United States, it's something that is uh, can domestically smack of imperialism. Uh, and secondly, and I think this is important, uh, when everybody is sanctioned, nobody is sanctioned. The way that sanctions can, in a domestic, uh, or in, in, from a domestic standpoint, uh, serve as a dividing force is when people are wondering, why is my colleague, who's more corrupt than I, a, uh, not sanctioned, whereas I am? And that's something that could have really exacerbated fissures within what is uh, pro probably the most corrupt government, uh, you know, since Trujillo, if not before, uh, that uh, has taken the all biggest oil windfall in human history uh, and taken it all to private bank accounts in Andorra, private bank accounts uh, all around the world, leaving nary a penny in the till uh, to be able to uh, subsidize imports so that people can eat and have medicine uh, or even pay foreign uh, uh, foreign lenders. Uh, right. So you have a country that's in default, that cannot feed its people. Uh, you have a lot of big bank accounts abroad, which are now being seized by uh, a, a foreign governments and given back, uh, at least on paper to some extent, uh, to the a, a, 
transitionary government. Right. So switch. So thank you for that, Danielle. And just being conscious of, of, of time, just I want to take this really quick to you, Tamir, to ask for maybe really briefly before we go into the next part of this question. Uh, you know, you understand this government very, you know, because you very intimately given your experience. And and without a doubt, you know, this is becoming, as Danielle has been highlighting, it's becoming highly political um, and to, to the complete disadvantage of the of the Venezuelan populace, particularly. Um, and I, I, can, I can't help myself even also for when I saw the United States immediately recognizing Juan Guaido, you know, my heart kind of stopped a bit saying this isn't, you know, this isn't, this isn't going to be what one thinks. Uh, what, what, how is from your end in regards to the fact that the politicization of Venezuelan politics have now become in the international arena? Well, um, I have, I have described the uh, political situation of Venezuela as polarized uh, for quite a long time. And, and uh, basically the, 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 the central question is, um, what is the, what is the solution to the situation in Venezuela? The, the, the fact that the country is polarized between Chavistas and anti-Chavistas, people who supported Hugo Chavez and, and people who opposed them, the fact that since 2013, uh, the political situation of the country has changed dramatically after the passing of Hugo Chavez, um, the situation started deteriorating and the policies pursued by the Maduro administration um, made things worse after the, uh, the, the, the sharp fall in, in, in the um, oil prices in, in, in June 2014. And, 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 and again, the, the, uh, the central question is how, how to rebuild a, a democratic system in, in a country where, uh, once again, um, the, the internal situation is very polarized. So my, my, my take here is uh, you need to find a common ground between the different political actors inside the country um, in order to, to basically return to an institutional functioning of the, of the political system. The problem with the approach that has been described is that, uh, again, describing the Chavismo as an illness, describing the Chavismo as a problem for democracy, leads the country in, in, in only two directions. One is the one that we are in now, which is the political stalemate. You have somebody who rises, uh, raises the stakes and says um, the solution to the country is to replace the current leadership. The problem is that this is a very polarized country uh, where, that, that has had this type of, of harsh opposition for the, for the last 20 years, and, and therefore the opposing camp will not accept that imposition. And on the other hand, the other solution, I mean, the, the, other, the, other, the other outcome of this uh, sort of radical approach is, is a potential civil conflict in the country, because if the stalemate uh, in, uh, uh, remains if the if the economic and social situation continues to deteriorate, uh, there is a real risk that that Venezuela uh, could could start a experiencing a higher level of political violence. So I I I, I always tend to say that the the only reasonable reasonable way out of this crisis is, is forgetting um, or, or or leaving aside this idea that one of the two factions can prevail. And, and, and can obtain a, a total victory after, uh, uh, over the other. And that a negotiation, a dialogue, uh, call it, I, I don't know, a national agreement is absolutely necessary in, in order to, um, you know, patiently rebuild a, a, an institutional functioning of the country. Uh, and yeah. finally, what I would say is that international stakeholders, uh, as long as, as the U.S., 
government or I don't know Russia or China uh, will 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 conceive um, Venezuela as a playground for their geopolitical interests as long as the Venezuelan different political factions do not understand that they have to reach an internal agreement. Um, the situation will continue to deteriorate, and 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 we will we will be in presence again uh, of either a political stalemate or a rise, rate, uh, sorry, rising uh, internal political violence. So again, we need an internal, a national agreement, uh, and an, a reinstitutionalization of Venezuelan politics. I'm glad you've taken in that angle because that's precisely what I want to take the next question into is the, the, the potential for a dialogue. I mean, as we're highlighting, the situation in the country is dismal. You know, there are many dis- disputing reports saying that oh, this is exaggerated or this is factual. Whatever the case be, the numbers are showing it that the Venezuelans are fleeing. It's high inflation with the Bolivares being worth to next to nothing, where it's impossible to buy food. You have doctors working without adequate medical supplies, uh, desperation reaching to such levels where there are now gangs pillaging cemeteries uh, to really establish any valuables among the dead. The situation is dire. That is, that's full stop. That being said, uh, you know, with the country reaching such uh, a dismal level, and of course we understand how political humanitarian aid can be, I really want to take uh, another understanding of where diplomacy and international development can can have a role, as in the role of NGOs or international organizations, whether it's the United Nations or Mercy Corps, to serve as an intermediary to at least ensure basic humanitarian needs for Venezuelans. Uh, can this be achieved given the current Venezuelan uh, administration in power or considering the current dynamics in Venezuela? Daniel, I'll start with you. On to your question, I would say current administration in charge, uh, I do not think it's possible uh, for several reasons. One uh, is that in the past, whenever uh, the Maduriato has seemed weak, uh, it has pushed very hard for an international uh, mediation of some kind of deal that can be done domestically, some kind of power-sharing arrangement. Uh, This has happened three times in recent memory. Each time, uh, once the spotlight is off Venezuela, uh, there are no concessions given by the governments. The inertia that forced the move uh, wastes, you know, peters out uh, as people wait for a dialogue that never happens. Uh, And then the dialogue never happens, uh, falls apart, uh, and you're back to square one uh, when the next, you know, example of criminal overreach uh, by the authorities in Caracas uh, sparks off a new set of uh, domestic uh, disturbances and of uh, political outrage uh, and international backlash, and then you rinse and repeat. Uh, And since this has happened so many times, you get into a bit of a Pedro Lobo uh, situation. Mm. Uh, where uh, the, the credibility of this government is essentially nil. Uh, that's the first reason. The second reason, uh, and I think this part is, is, is fundamental, it's the, is that to be able to uh, recover Venezuela's economy, uh, the, one of the uh, sort of shorthand ways uh, or sort of reasons for the downfall of the Venezuelan economy that's often cited is the collapse of oil prices in 2014. But a I, oil could be at $110 a barrel, $150 a barrel right now, and it wouldn't make much difference because the oil industry uh, is completely unproductive. Uh, legally, there is no way to invest in the oil industry for the vast majority of international investors due to sanctions. Uh, and the 
a, a, a domestic politics in many of the countries that have sanctioned Venezuela do not lend themselves to unsanctioning Venezuela and looking like a failure or people who were defeated uh, in a strategy, uh, whether that be the United States, whether that be Brazil, uh, whether that be anybody in Latin America, essentially, except Mexico, uh, and whether that be uh, any one of the EU countries. So uh, without a change at the top, it's going to be very difficult to justify uh, without admitting failure, which politicians of any stripe are, are generally pretty loath to do. Uh, the third part is that a hyperinflation in the past, the only way that it has ever been uh, stopped uh, by any country has been uh, to convince the population that a currency today is going to be worth roughly the same as currency tomorrow. If you don't do that, if you do not have the credibility with your own people uh, to say, hold on to your bolivares, they are going to be worth something tomorrow. Then as soon as payday comes, people treat bolivares like ice cubes out of the fridge. You took the ice cube out of the fridge, you're in tropical heat, it's melting. You need to find something to do with it. And you buy up anything, whether you need it or not, uh, that can preserve value longer. That's something that exacerbates shortages. That's something that exacerbates hyperinflation. You can only break that cycle. And you can see this with Brazil and Plan Rai. Uh, you can see this uh, you know, with any country that has kept its currency after a hyperinflationary period. Uh, you have to basically convince the people uh, that this time it's truly different. The problem is that the uh, Maduro government has attempted this as well five or six times. They've changed the name of the currency. They've introduced a petro currency, uh, El Petro. They have uh, announced, uh, changed acronyms on the currency controls. Uh, and none of these things have worked even a little bit. Uh, they have done nothing to even slow hyperinflation for any uh, considerable period of time. That's something that means that you are not going to be able to convince your people that this time it's going to work, uh, which means people will continue to treat the currency like ice cubes and supply and demand if everybody's selling the currency at the same time. Uh, you know, these are very basic economic things. So while Maduro is in charge, you're going to not convince the Venezuelans that the economy is going to stabilize, and you're not going to be able to convince investors who can't invest anyway because of sanctions uh, to give him the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to convince the international community to get rid of the sanctions because it's declaring defeat. Uh, so it's just a very, very, very high bar. Uh, if I'm Chavismo, what I would be thinking about right now is how much do we have to sacrifice to be able to actually seem newer than we are? And I would be looking probably at Ecuador, at Lenin Morales, uh, who is a leftist uh, president uh, who comes from the left uh, and has uh, basically pinned most of what went wrong in the Correa administration on Correa. Uh, who's fighting extradition in Belgium uh, and said, we're new now uh, we, and done so in a, and do so in a way in which you can protect some of the ill-gotten gains of Chavismo so that uh, the system uh, will work with you somewhat, but get enough of a facelift that investors will give Venezuela the benefit of the doubt. The people will give the new currency scheme the benefit of the doubt. And that's going to be very, very difficult to accomplish. That is a very fine line that they would have to walk. Uh, but beyond that, I don't see any way short of a complete transition uh, to Guaido, uh, or if not to Guaido, to something else that's not the current government uh, that would be viable in terms of uh, assuaging uh, either international or domestic concerns uh, at, at what a, uh, a, a disaster uh, this economy has become.
So from your point of view in that case, that irrespective of whether or not there is, let's say, a non-state actor that plays a role to try to bring in humanitarian aid or try to bring in at least the basic needs of this Venezuelan population as they work out this 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 this, this maelstrom of, of of political interest. I mean, for lack of a better word, you know, whoa. Um, that there's really no there's no potential to really to really solve the card to, to provide that, that too level. has been tried we tried with zapatero and the spaniards uh in the dominican republic process uh there was the attempt in uruguay uh the vatican i mean they're they're, they're infallible on paper mm. <laughs> uh, if any organization should have been able to pull it off it was the vatican and they weren't able to do it uh, so what international actor could you really realistically have that would have credibility at this point uh with both sides I do. I agree that dialogue in a functional world, in a functional situation, would be the optimal outcome for this. I don't think many so people would argue. So, what's the alternative? Are, are, yeah, going are to, we going to, to listen me. for one hour for an argument, or is it no. a, a debate? <laughs> yeah, going to Tabir. Tabir, uh, I mean, yeah. it's 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 a little it's a little annoying to uh, you know to be to be listening for forty minutes um, a one sided argument. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, that's, under, that's... Un, under those conditions, I'm not. I'm, I'm not interested. No, not no. In... That's no, no. But this is. Yeah, I mean, this, you're this, saying this dialogue, but you're not interested. You're not interested. Well, hold this is just, comedy. Uh, in I mean, what the other is... side might have to say. Hold, hold on. No, no, just you, to you've, take been, it... you've been talking for almost twenty minutes. I mean, it's. To, to, to take it now, actually, to, to actually to take, to take it actually towards you because I really no, want be, to... because it's and I'm sorry this is very uh, inaccurate you know we have we 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 we're having a discussion over you know inaccurate arguments and, you know mm. you don't come with five or six times or this and that or approximately two or three I mean if we're going to have a precise debate on the country uh, I don't know. Uh, Stick to the facts. Speak the truth. To me, I would love. This is where I would love to really take it then towards your end and and to, in this aspect because you've indicated that there's the need for negotiation. No. There's the need for dialogue. Absolutely. What, and I'm in mean accordance with that. So the, I wanted to a, understand. Go ahead. Yeah. No. A conversation on Venezuela can only be constructive if we're here to think to to think about the future of the country. If we're here to you know listen to a I don't know politicized discourse that is destroying the left and and saying that the left is bad i mean it's it's it might be interesting in some in some circles but i'm 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 really not interested in 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 getting to that debate and i find it absolutely useless um if if we're here to discuss about the future of the country is 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 to have a debate on the reality so if the reality is if 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 the question is can things be improved and the situation is a political stalemate, and we describe why in the political stalemate the, the situation cannot be improved, you know, the only alternative to that is chaos. The only alternative to that is war. I agree, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, again, so I'm, I'm here interested, I'm, I'm interested in finding ways to get the things moving, not to complain on, on, on why the things that didn't move so far. So, um, again, I, I, I keep insisting that, that we need to... to uh, to, to keep the, the, the um, uh, again, we, we, we need to assess the situation as it is. Um, there is a political stalemate. Um, the, the situation deteriorates day by day. Uh, Venezuela is not sanctioned by the international community. There's not such thing in Venezuela. The only economic and financial sanctions affecting Venezuela 
are unilateral sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, which didn't start in January 2019, as it has been said, which started in August 2017. Um, so again, if we're going to have a debate on the facts, uh, we need to have our facts right. Um, Again, I, I might agree the sanctioning that, you know, of saying that the current twenty nine. No, 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 no. You're wrong. You're wrong. In 2017, Venezuela, Venezuela and PDVSA were prevented from, from restructuring their debt. So the sanctions in August 2017 affected PDVSA as well, uh, as PDVSA was not able to, uh, to, uh, to restructure its debt after August 2017, which explains basically... While why why the uh, the the country uh, declared and PDVSA declared default on almost all the the series of securities except for the PDVSA 2020s. So um, again, I mean, if we if we're going to have a debate, we 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 need to have our our, our facts right. Um, again, I, I might agree. Even I mean, it's obvious that the country cannot move forward in the in the current situation. The the real question is how how to find an alternative possibility. And the only, the only thing that I'm challenging, the only idea that I'm challenging is that that alternative is the imposition of uh, Juan Guaido as interim president, is the imposition of the chosen president uh, by the Trump administration because there are no internal conditions for that to happen in the country. The Venezuelan military will never accept uh, that solution, and they have made it clear, and the, the reality has shown that um, uh, the imposition of, of Juan Guaido as president, a member of a, of a, of a political party that has had a, um, a long history of conflict with Chavismo, a long history of conflict with the Venezuelan armed forces, um, this is just not re unrealistic. I mean, I, I, I don't even, I'm not even, you know, uh, 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 ex expressing a point of view on whether Mr. Guaido is suitable or not. It's just that the internal conditions of the country uh, make it impossible and have made it impossible so far for that alternative to work. So if, if that doesn't work, if the country is facing the danger of further escalation in, 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 in sanctions, uh, which could, you know, affect uh, not, not even U.S. banks, but international banks, uh, could be sanctions, could, could be sanctioned. Sorry, by the by the Trump administration in order to prevent Venezuela from even trading, trading food or or, or, or trading basic goods. Um, the the country could run into a even worse catastrophic situation in a in, in a few months. So we really need to come up with a solution, and the solution of the January twenty third is not the right one. So again, the debate is. So what's a good solution? How can we, you know, bring uh, people from both sides uh, uh, in, in order to engineer a different solution? I have, I have said myself that that um, both in, in Chavismo and anti-Chavismo, there are political forces and individuals who have made it clear that even if uh, dialogue in, in, and negotiation has failed in the past, the mm. only alternative for, di for dialogue is a conflict. So we need to get back to the uh, negotiating table and see who are the political 
uh, factors and leaders in Venezuela that are ready to to make what it needs to be done. You know, we need to reach an agreement. I'm going to have you hold your thought because I do want to come back to to this particular to this particular notion because I do want to see whether or not there is a possibility for the dialogue. Simply because Danielle is actually take a flight shortly. Uh, Danielle, do you have uh, one final thought in regards to the possibility of of diplomacy and international development for Venezuela in the current dynamics? I would say that uh, from uh, the, the, the thing I wanted to say uh, beyond, uh, we've seen how the different conceptualizations as to what the problem is and where fault lies uh, makes it difficult to agree even on the basic facts uh, in a way that uh, is, is possible to build on. I don't think this is merely a Venezuelan phenomenon. This is something that's happening uh, all across the region. It's something that's happening uh, even in, in, in Europe and the United States. Uh, you are having a polarization of worldviews, uh, you know, exacerbated by things like social media, exacerbated by, by uh, identity uh, and differing uh, conceptions of that that make it very difficult to agree, uh, even on the most basic metrics. But there are certain things uh, that I think, uh, from a development standpoint, can be done, uh, which not enough people are doing. Uh, so a, a big one would be that Venezuela has is right now experiencing the biggest mass exodus of refugees uh, in its history. Uh, it, I was recently in Cúcuta, uh, which is, uh, you know, after the United States and Mexico, uh, the Cúcuta-Táchira border is the uh, most heavily traversed in Latin America or in the Americas. And it's, uh, they are really struggling uh, to be able to uh, contain uh, the uh, mass exodus of Venezuelans who are leaving, uh, many of them without necessary provisions, uh, without much currency or usable currency because the Bolivar has been rendered worthless, uh, and are trying to go and join family who may have already left as far afield as Santiago or Sao Paulo and have no ability to get there. Uh, and while the politicization of a, 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 a development and the politicization of humanitarian aid has been one of the unfortunate byproducts of the current situation, uh, you know, the idea that if uh, uh, aid is accepted from some quarters, then Maduro won't allow it, or, or that that is implicitly supporting Guaido, uh, or that is implicitly supporting uh, one geopolitical team or the other. Uh, I would say that in both Colombia and Brazil, uh, there are lots of NGOs that are attempting to make it uh, easier uh, for Venezuelans who have crossed over uh, to do so and to keep their families intact and to uh, either get where they're going or find a place to go uh, to be able to wait out the storm, which does not show any uh, immediate or even uh, medium term signs of abating. Uh, so uh, what, what I would say is that if people do want to be involved, uh, the Maduro government is very likely to not let you. And even if they do, uh, you will probably be exposed under uh, some uh, very liberal interpretation of a lot of the sanctioning laws uh, by the Trump administration. There, where there is a real need and a real ability to do good uh, and to help develop is in Cúcuta, for example, where there's an organization called uh, Fundecuc, Fundación de Venezolanos en Cúcuta, that gives coats and shoes and maps. Uh, to people who have come over with nothing. Uh, there is a, a, another organization whose name escapes me uh, right now, uh, but uh, which is based in Roraima, uh, which does similar work. And if uh, you want to, either for a humanitarian or even for a social investing purposes, uh, I would really say look at Roraima, look at Norte Santander, uh, look at these uh, various regions that are bearing the brunt of it, uh, because there's a lot of work to be done there.
All right. Well, thank you for a that. Political Dan- work. Well, thank you for that, Danielle, and thank you for joining the podcast and and for providing that commentary. Uh, Tamir, I do want to take this then back to you because, of course, you, thank you for having me. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure, uh, Tamir. I wanted to to ask then again because, of course, the, the purpose of diplomacy and international development is really taking the focus in regards to actually engaging with the actual government, having the, the negotiation, and of course, whether or not you know the, Danielle had highlighted the NGOs that are around, and we know that there are multiple. Uh, international organizations operating within or out uh, of Venezuela. But what's the possibility of them engaging with, because as you've indicated, we have to look at the situation as it is. We have to look at the Venezuelan people as they're being affected. And as the whole political maelstrom goes on, one must wonder, okay, right, while that needs to sort itself out, what about the people? What is the possibility of the of NGOs or the UN or even business to really step up the plate and take on the diplomatic mediation role uh, to engage with the Venezuelan government and to try to, to provide at least basic uh, services, whether it's electricity or medicine or, or whatever the key thing is? Where's the possibility for that in the, in the current uh, dynamics? Well, I think that the, the first step to uh, be taken is to is to acknowledge that again there will be no solution to the crisis unless there is some sort of negotiation, um, which hasn't been the case so far. Um, from 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 January twenty third again, the international recognition, the very quick international recognition obtained by the Guaido administration, made it very clear that the international community, the Latin American countries that supported Guaido, the countries of the EU, Canada, and the United States mainly, were expecting that the proclamation of Guaido and the international recognition would generate a very quick regime uh, crisis and, and that that would lead in a, in, a, in a matter of days to a regime change. So the, the problem is that the hypothesis from the beginning is wrong. And, and the international community and, and national and international stakeholders need to understand that there will be no virtuous so the, uh, outcome of, uh, to the crisis if there is no some sort if there is not some sort of, of of negotiation. And then, once you have acknowledged that, you can find the appropriate partners, the appropriate approach to the country in order to basically you know create the right incentives. How can you create incentives uh, for the Venezuelan military to be part of the solution if most of the messages that have been sent uh, to the Venezuelan military since the, since January uh, 2019 is join Guaido or you will end up in the Hague? Um, uh, and, 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 and why is that? Just because, you know, just because one side of the, uh, of the Venezuelan polity has decided that uh, they are legitimate to take over power and 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 even you know threat the uh, Venezuelan military uh, of 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 being uh, some of them being sent to the uh, ICC. Um, you have had uh, U.S. officials threatening uh, Venezuelan um, military of 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 ending up their days in Guantanamo. You have had this crazy rhetoric around the country. Um, and it doesn't seem that that there is that there's anyone serious in charge uh, addressing the situation of the country, which again deteriorates by the day. So it, it it is not enough with describing the situation, with blaming the government, and just you know coming up with strong words. 
what you need is to is to find the correct channels and the correct actors to uh, to uh, to facilitate the political solution and very concretely there have been initiatives uh, so far um one by the uh, by 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 the european commission called the international contact group another one by a group of latin american countries headed by uh, uruguay and mexico uh, but again, what, what needs to be understood is that those initiatives will not be successful is if there is not an alignment of most of the actors of the international community behind the idea that an agreement needs to be reached. Today, there is still people who think who think that uh, the government collapse can be a good thing for the Venezuelan people. And, and again, uh, I'm, I'm not defending, you know, the, uh, the Maduro administration, but the problem is that if the government collapses tomorrow and, and you have an interim governing, government taking over, an interim government that hasn't solved yet the problem of the allegiance of the military, what would happen if the Venezuelan military would split? And, 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 and would divide, you know, in their allegiance, once to the interim government, once to the collapsed government, and, and, and then we, we could be on the verge. Yeah, yeah we've seen those episodes, so, like in Libya, for example. Absolutely. So it, it, the situation is much more delicate than, than the international community seems to, seems to uh, uh, perceive it. Uh, and, and still, the solution is, in my opinion, easier to find than in, other, than in other scenarios, because we haven't reached that point where political violence has sparked or, or become general in the country. So, um, again, I, I'm, I'm, I, could, I can only suggest there are um, uh, some northern European countries, for instance, I don't want to name them, but who have, who, who, who have specialized in the past in facilitating uh, the negotiations in tense political situations. Um, the problem with the past negotiations in Venezuela were that they were too public. They were led in um, in in a in, in a too, in a public fashion, if you will, and and they were subject to the pressure of the public opinion. In the case of Venezuela, if there were to be a mediation, it needs to be a very discreet, a very secretive mediation that 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 reaches out to the key decision makers in the country. And, uh, and 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 that basically starts generating incentives for the two for the two sides to reach a compromise. Otherwise, the the current stalemate can last, and the situation, humanitarian, social, and economic situation in the country will continue to deteriorate. I mean, naturally, the diplomat part of me is, is complete accordance to the fact that there needs to be dialogue. But at the same time, as both yourself and as Danielle have have highlighted, uh, this is an extremely complicating and an extremely political situation, uh, and which does not have the very, uh, as one says in French, le cadre, uh, you know, the 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 the, the framework response uh to really just to, to make it uh, simply easy to to go to go along with um i do want to take the question now to ryan who has been very much uh patient uh as we as i wanted to understand more now in regards to how the current dynamics of venezuela internally are affecting when i want outside and i don't mean outside as in the u.s and russia and whatnot because to be, to see more within the south di- uh, south american dynamic particularly with brazil uh ryan uh uh, as you know, there have been reports on the Brazil-Venezuelan border uh, in February where oppositions were even seen trying to bring in aid and has been met with uh, ex- extreme tension. Um, 
we do understand there are around 85,000 Venezuelan refugees uh, who are currently uh, in the country. How can you tell us what is the current situation with Brazil and how it's taking a toll on the states that border with the country? Hi. So uh, first of all, uh, thanks for uh, having me here. And uh, yeah, it's become uh, a bit of an interesting issue in, in, in Brazil, and I suppose interesting more in the case of the phrase, may you live in, in the curse of may you live in interesting times, not interesting in a positive manner. Um, backtracking a little bit, um, most of the immigration uh, from Venezuela has taken place in the border state of Horaima, as uh, Danielle um, alluded to. Um, and so Horaima is a small state of about 500,000 people. And as you mentioned, there are probably about 85,000. They're actually, I've seen estimates of about 100,000 now uh, migrants coming over from Venezuela. And the vast majority of them are still in Horaima. It depends on the day, how many are there. Some go back to Venezuela. It's a bit more difficult now that the border's closed. Um, some have been able to go to other some have uh, kept going and have gone on to other countries some have gone to other cities in brazil but this is a very large burden for a city like Horaima to carry and so at, at any given time you have about maybe let's say more than 10 percent of their capital boa vista is composed of venezuelan migrants uh and a lot of them uh, have been living on the streets and in public places. So this has been a bit of a problem with public services, uh, especially given the public services were never particularly good or efficient in Horaima to begin with. So this has had a, a destabilizing effect and it became a bit of an election hotspot in certain areas, uh, such as Horaima, where, uh, where when, I, when I was there, I saw that it had become a bit of a, a lightning rod in terms of uh, political rhetoric. You had people asking to close the border at the time. You had people trying, um, you had politicians trying to blame Venezuelans for, uh, Venezuelan migrants for upswings in crime and uh, instability that, that the state was facing. Now, ironically, now the border actually has been closed and this time by the Venezuelans, not by the Brazilian side, you actually have some of these same politicians now clamoring and trying to get people to reopen the border because it turns out that the commercial effects of this were not so great for Hodaima. Hmm. So they have, they have uh, rethought their position a little bit uh, because it turns out that Hodaima is actually quite dependent on, uh, on, a, on commerce with Venezuela. Uh, and so, and if you actually listen carefully to what a lot of people who are complaining about migration were saying, especially along the border, they weren't saying, we don't want Venezuelans here. They were saying, we want them to come and buy lots of things in the daytime and then go back to Venezuela at night. <laughs> oh, that sounds like the, the, the usual <laughs> rhetoric of many. It's like, you know, we you know come here shortly, then go back. But the question is, where are they going back to? And that's what renders it quite quite complicating. Exactly. So you have, so you have see, the border town of Pacaraima now... Um, they don't even have gas because everyone would just go to Venezuela to buy their gasoline. Now, the nearest gas stop is what, about, I believe I saw something about 200 kilometers away within Brazil. So no one uses their cars because there's no gas. <laughs> so this is maybe a bit of an unintended situation of be careful of what you wish for <laughs> um, for certain people. 
And what so, about uh, mm-hmm. what about the implications that it can have in the future for the relations between Brazilians who live in the border, such as, in, for example, in Horaima, with Venezuelans? Mm-hmm. You know, here I'm I'm based in London, and then of course the refugee crisis mm-hmm. coming in. For uh, you know, I'm based. I'm also I'm I'm also Italian as well too, among my many mm-hmm. other nationalities. And Italy has received such. Uh, an influx of of refugees, which has mm. rendered the current political scenarios that we see in Italy, with with the rise of Salvini and Di Maio, mm-hmm. and and so on and so forth. Of course, we have the current Bolsonaro um, uh, dynamic, mm. which 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 makes it even more interesting in that sense. But what could be the implications this could have then in regards to the mindset of Brazilians that are living in the border and how they view uh, Venezuelan refugees, and what is the Basically, the 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 the, the risk this poses mm-hmm. for the stability of this particular part of the world. Yeah, so this is uh, this has already had a, a very big effect, but it's been very localized, as you mentioned. This has been this has been a very strong localized effect in, say, Horaima, and I'd say maybe in a few other places, such as Amazonas, with uh, the capital of Manaus, has seen uh, an influx of Venezuelans a- as well. But if you talk to people, Hodaim was always this sort of place in which middle-class Venezuelans would come and go. They'd buy things. Middle-class people from Horaima would go to Venezuela. They'd buy things. And there was this sort of tourism and, and, and there was this basic familiarity with one another. And now it definitely has uh, become a lot tenser. Um, so as you alluded to, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, who was recently elected president of Brazil, um, has was was elected on a on a on a nationalist platform, and he did not actually. He was very popular in Horaima because he has said uh, he emphasized the idea of nationhood a lot. And when he talked about refugees, um, he referred, for example, to uh, Syrian Syrian uh, refugees, I believe, as the scum of the earth. Uh, and made a comment about Brazil not wanting to receive them. Oh boy! Um, so this was relatively inflammatory and did receive a lot of attention. Now he did say this before he became a candidate. I will say, as a candidate, he actually did not talk about immigration as much as I was afraid he would. Um, that does not mean that people in Horaima did not talk about immigration. They did, and it was a very big. Um, it, it was a very big flashpoint in in the election. Now, I will say that one thing that I was surprised about was that you would hear a lot of people talking informally about we need to close the border. You know, this is out of control. Venezuelans are, you know, they're Venezuelans in the street. It's just not safe anymore, which, by the way, I have to say, I'm from a small city in the U.S. I know how the how sudden increases in crime can be perceived. I can also say that as someone who lives in Sao Paulo right now, um, you see certain attitudes towards personal safety in, in, in the capital of Horaim in Boa Vista, uh, or rather um, attitudes that don't necessarily take into account personal security mm-hmm. that you wouldn't see in Sao Paulo. The crime rate is still pretty low. Oh, let's so be honest. in comparison to what, of course, of course, well, one knows very well that there is uh, quite an, uh, an interesting uh, dynamic when it comes to 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 personal safety, whether you're in Rio de Janeiro yeah. or in Sao Paulo. But so the Horaiba yeah. part. So in regards to the personal safety that they're experiencing, is it mm. what the many European 
uh, political leaders are hearkening as, let's say, thieves or as in uh, rapes or all that nonsense. Uh, my, I'm under the assumption that is that is absolutely not the case. That's just rumors. But for what what have you mm-hmm. heard? Yeah. So the crime rate has the objective. The numbers state that it has gone up. Um, that said, a lot of the perception comes from certain a certain type of media coverage and the fact that if even if it Let's say it's 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 not it's objective. Boa Vista, the capital, is not objectively a big city. Um, it is a relatively small city of about three hundred thousand. But even so, it still has, in some ways, the. Me- I recognize just having been there. I recognize the same sort of mentality and sort of the closeness between, say, extended family members that I see in my hometown of forty thousand. And so, when something happens, everyone knows about it instantly <laughs> and rumors are and and with whatsapp rumors are very quick to spread i'll give you an example there is a very well publicized um on the border on the border t- in the border town of pacaraima there's a very well publicized um robbery um and and beating that took place and uh, of a well-known uh citizen around there uh he he was apparently robbed and stabbed by people that seem to be venezuelan there's they seem to be speaking spanish People just naturally assume they're Venezuelan, and the this sort of spread like wildfire. This this news, and the end result was that uh, a mob of people descended upon the uh, upon the temporary um, around where the Venezuelans in the city had camped out and threw them out. They started burning their belongings. They burnt their tents, and they uh, expelled about say about a thousand Venezuelans. I think that day, hmm. and so this was this. So in a lot of ways, there's reality and there's perception. And obviously there is a relation between the two, but there's not. it's not always the same thing. <laughs> so on one hand, there has been an increase, in, especially in petty crime. But on the other hand, a lot, a lot of this has to do with how news spreads nowadays. The main newspaper in Boa Vista, for instance, the Folha de Boa Vista, if you look at that thing... It's just if it leads, it bleeds, and it takes it to its logical conclusion. Every single article you see about Venezuelan uh, it involves Venezuelan. There's no human interest stories about, say, that you might even see in Sao Paulo. I've seen human interest stories talking about, oh, there's a Venezuelan judge, you know, who's now living here, and he's been playing music on the street, but he still loves Brazil and sees no opportunity. You don't see human interest stories. You see Venez- supposed Venezuelans or people we- that seem to be Venezuelan robbed this place or they beat up this person or they did this they did that every single day whenever there is something that happens it's going to be front page news there so the same notion as you would see for example in europe where people seem to put blame on anybody who is foreign or let's say for example speaking arabic or or mm-hmm. dari if they're from afghanistan it's, it's that same dynamic which which pretty much shows yeah. that a refugee migrant crisis you know mm-hmm. or xenophobic sentiments that they 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 have mm-hmm. no difference in regards to how they're acting that says i i, I i've definitely heard uh People mention that they're afraid to speak Spanish on the street. Yes, wow. um, that 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 has been that has been reported. Um, that has been reported in in a, in a few news stories. Yes, that um, migrants have have made that comment. That said, I do want to uh, I do want to mention that the situation has gotten better. Okay. Um, since the military, this was a lot of this happened at at the apex of of the crisis. Uh, of the migration crisis at the end of last year, just before the election. And of course, this was intensified by people wanting to find ways to win votes. Uh, after the election, it, it 
honestly has calmed down a bit from everything I can tell. The, the military has been in charge of, um, they've been able to build some more shelters. Uh, it seems to be quite well run. They've been able to uh, help migrants who want to migrate to other parts of Brazil. They've been able to help expedite that. There have been about 5,000, I believe, that have moved to other parts of Brazil, such as Sao Paulo, and some other places in rural Brazil that you would never expect that have been made it clear that they're open to accepting migrants. I don't want this to, this does not mean that everything is hunky-dory. Uh, there have definitely been a lot of, in, of problems in integration in a lot of these places that have been receiving migrants because a lot of these places aren't used to receiving migrants. Immigration nowadays is not something that is particularly common in Brazil, but it is a lot better than say the last big immigra- last big migration wave, which was of uh, Haitians yes, in the wake of the earthquake in 2010. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do recall. And the so, north. yeah, exactly. So things are definitely people have learned from this, and it is much more organized. And so a lot of so a lot of the um, the fear mongering with the end of the elections and with the federalization of refugee control and taking it out of the state of Hodaima's hands uh, has made things better. I'd say that said, and then the border closed, and now you have some other you have another host of problems uh, that have come up with that. So, on one hand, I don't want to minimize the problems that Venezuelans and Brazil still face. Uh, you still have a fair number of people that haven't been able to get into shelters, uh, that are still in Hodaima waiting, um, waiting for somewhere to take them, and that have also been placed in other, in, other, in other cities, but maybe haven't been able to get a job, or maybe the job hasn't worked and they're, and they're back living on the, on the streets, or they're still in shelters. They haven't been able to integrate that well. But on the other hand, things have gotten better. Things have gotten better. So, but things have gotten better for the moment. And this brings me then to the last question. It's in regards to though for the moment they've gotten better. Uh, the question is, what will happen if if the situation of Venezuela does not change, as our as Temir and Danielle and, have been yes. basically highlighting? It is, and what and what we've been getting overall on this episode is the fact that it is a very very highly politically charged uh, scenario, um, where there is indeed a need for dialogue and, and and negotiation in order to provide humanitarian relief and basic services. For the Venezuela people, but that being said, uh, it seems that the, the the general populace in Venezuela are, are too divided where there could be any sustainable, um, even distribution of humanitarian aid, um, seems even, even likely. I want to ask the final question, what would the implications be, very briefly, uh, to Brazil if this situation yeah. continues on for months, years, and escalates? Yeah, so here's where the bad news <laughs> So that was all the good news. Uh, mitigated good news, but good news. Uh, here, yeah, here's the bad news. Oh, great. So uh, Brazil has done pretty well now after having had some time to adjust the situation with, um, say, between 85,000 to 100,000 migrants, a lot of which are also going back over the border when possible. That's great. What happens if that doubles? What happens if that triples? Okay, so Colombia has more than a million immigrants, for instance. So what happens if things get worse and say border controls um, and say the border opens again? What happens there? Because, okay, migration has has remained constant for the most part, but it's also a lot more, more difficult to migrate now because the border is closed. And so you have to take clandestine routes to get to Brazil. What happens if the border opens for some reason? You might see you you might see uh, a, a heavy increase actually in migration. 
to Brazil, and then you might be back, and then we might have the same problem again, but worse. So, in some ways, Brazil has kind of gotten gotten a grip now on the situation. But if things get worse, then it could be even worse than before. Mm-hmm. So, and and this is, and I would hardly rule this out. Uh, because, of course, the situation seems to be getting worse. Who knows if the border will be opened at some point? And also, who knows what, what other international actors are going to do? That's also, that's also a big question mark. So what happens if uh, there's, a big, there's a big division in both the opposition and in the Brazilian government about what to do about Venezuela? So what happens if maybe the more interventionist factions end up winning out? Well, that could introduce a whole other wrinkle in the situation. And so... This isn't to say that everything's hunky-dory. Uh, this might very well be the calm before the storm. That's precisely what I'm I'm also under the impression as well, too, that this is very much the calm before the storm. And you know, as we've been hearing throughout all of today's discussion is the fact that the, the situation, irrespective of one's uh, role within the dynamics of Venezuela, the, 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 the facts are there. The situation is dire and it's becoming highly politicized as the days progress and is not really leading towards the ameliorament of the situation. And and though, you know, I, I, I'm the forever optimist and believe that things mm. can change for the best, I do feel, just as you've said, you know, we really don't know when it comes to the to the scenario in Venezuela. So I think the most important thing to do is to really understand where there are opportunities for diplomacy in international development, for negotiation, for bridging the gap between relevant stakeholders uh, to really to really come to a solution because as it seems uh, this is a this is as as I've, I've said before earlier in the episode this is as we would say in the Dominican Republic es un sancocho. it is a mix and it is quite um, it, it is very much a dynamic so thank you to Tamir uh, Danielle as well for his participation and thank you very much Ryan for being part of this very informative and thought-provoking episode of the global podcast Thanks so much for having me. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtecumglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!